graduating. That was a very generous introduction. I think this is the fourth time I've preached so far, but I could be wrong. So forgive me if I am. Um, let's see. What am I supposed to say first? Well, I can uh, I can bring greetings to you from. Grace Covenant Church in Bloomington, your sister church. Um, it, is, uh, it is always such a, uh, a treat to be able to be here with you and uh, to bring God's word to you. Um, I'm going to take us to um, two passages today. Uh, we're going to be hovering. We're hovering between two different passages. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2 and we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5. So we're going to be going back and forth a bit between those two. Uh, We'll read God's word uh, in just a minute and pray. But I wanted to to mention before we got there, um, I can remember in 2005, I was living in St. Louis at the time, and I was driving around uh, South St. Louis in my my white Ford Ranger, um, and I was listening to the radio, and I heard an interview come on, uh, and it was it was an interview with Tom Brady. This is this has now become a famous interview. It was a sixty minutes interview done by a man named Steve Croft, and Croft was interviewing Tom Brady just after Brady had won his third Super Bowl at the age of twenty-seven. And in this interview. Um, which was just fascinating. It caught my attention as soon as I began to listen to it. It was so sort of uh, so transparent and honest as Brady was speaking. What, one of the things that Croft asked him was, you know, he said, "You push yourself hard every day. You push yourself hard. What what has that taught you? Right? What has that taught you about how you live life? What has that taught you about yourself?" And Um, I I wrote down here part of what Brady said in response. This is what he said. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? What else is there? Well, a year later, uh, Brady broke up with his actress girlfriend to marry a Brazilian supermodel. So there was something more for him. Before he was 30 years old, Brady had done more than most people accomplish in their entire lives. He's 45 years old now. He's still a remarkable athlete, an incredible competitor. But as you may know, he just had his first losing season in his entire long career, and he divorced his Brazilian supermodel wife. Brady was not at peace when he was 27. He's not at peace at 45. 
I want to think today about what peace looks like in our lives. I want to think about the peace that God offers to us in Christ. I want to do that by thinking about um, a few guys uh, who show up at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and then disappear. I want to think about it by thinking about the wise men. Let me read the passage from Matthew 2. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray. This is the word of God from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And then he cites, quotes, uh, Micah chapter 5. He says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it had come to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, the wise men uh, show up here in Matthew 2. Uh, we never meet them again. We don't know a whole lot about them. Uh, church tradition suggests that there were three of them. Uh, one of them from uh, Arabia or perhaps Ethiopia, a second one from Persia, and a third one from India. They've even given them names, Balthazar, Melchior, and Gaspar. But of course, we don't get any of that from the text. Maybe it's true, maybe not. There are a few things that we know about these wise men. Uh, we know, first of all, that they come from the east. Uh, what does that mean exactly? We don't know. Uh, east of Jerusalem, well, there's a lot of territory east of Jerusalem isn't there? They're called in the text by our translation wise men, but the word is actually magi or magi. And that word is a Persian word. So it may well be the case that these guys who come from the east are coming from Persia, modern day Iran. This word magi is an interesting one. Now, we don't know quite how much to read into this. 
It probably suggests that they come from Persia, but it may suggest even more than that. See, the word magi, which we usually translate as wise men, older translations sometimes rendered it as king. That's why you get that song, we three kings of Orient are. The word literally means something like fortune teller or, or magician, something like that. These guys are stargazers. These are, these are heaven watchers. Uh, these are people who are looking at the night sky in an effort to try to understand the world around them. The other thing that we know for sure about them is this. There's more than one of them. There are multiple wise men. It's not just one wise man. It's multiple wise men. Now, we don't know how many there are. Right? Traditionally, we say three. You have a crush scene at your house or nativity scene, you probably have three wise men. But the text doesn't say anywhere that there are three of them. It does say there are three gifts that they bring, three royal gifts. It doesn't say anything about the number of men who actually arrived. Could have been two. Could have been ten. I don't think it would be a hundred, right? That feels like too many, right? But, but a smallish number, more than two, uh, more than one, uh, less than a hundred, somewhere in there. But I think in addition to the things that we, we know about the wise men from the text directly, I think there are a number of things that we can also sort of presume rightly from the text, things that we can draw out of the text that tell us a little bit more about what's going on with them and about their story. So for example, I think that we can presume that these men were wealthy, or at least that they had access to wealth. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, they have taken a very long journey from a faraway place. Later on in Matthew, uh, it, it seems to be the case that this journey has taken them somewhere around two years. To travel for two years in the ancient world, that's very expensive. What's more, when they show up at Jerusalem and they knock on the door of the palace, they aren't thrown out because they're dressed like beggars. They're listened to. They're actually given a hearing. And again, that suggests that they have some sort of appearance that would make them welcome in that kind of context. A third reason that we think they might have some wealth is, well, look at the gifts. Gold, pretty nice. Frankincense. Well, we're not really sure what frankincense, no, it's, it's an incense, right? It's, it's a nice, rich smell. Myrrh, too, is another kind of, um, uh, like an ointment, right? A, a, a fragrant ointment. Uh, these were rich gifts. They were costly gifts. Notice they didn't spend these gifts on the journey of a year and a half or two years to get to Jerusalem. So these people, these men, probably had a certain amount of wealth. I think there's also no reason for us to presume that these wise men knew anything about the God of Israel, that they were worshipers of the God of Israel. There's no reason to think that they were worshiping the God of Israel before the thing with the star happened in their lives. Right? They're foreigners coming out of a context where it would have been most natural for them to worship false gods, to worship idols, to worship many gods, in fact. But it does seem to be the case that, like Tom Brady, 
they're looking for something more. Right? There is there's some dissatisfaction. There's something that drives them to seek more in their life. Otherwise, why would they have left their homes? Why not just stay wherever they were? There's something that is driving them to look for more. And that means, I think, that God must have revealed something to them. If I'm right, if these are the stargazing type, looking at the, 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 the night sky, well, one night, what they see is a new star. Right? The text says, a star rising, a new star in the sky. In the ancient world, a new star was often connected with a royal birth. They would see this and they would say, ah, oh, a king has been born somewhere. But, of course, they may have seen that, and they may have said a king was born, but how would they know that the king who was born was a king that was way over there in the West, specifically the king of the Jews? No, to know that, God must have revealed something about the meaning of the appearance of this star for them. So they knew something. They knew that one had been born who was a king of the Jews, but they didn't know everything, did they? Right? They, they, they don't know exactly where they're supposed to go. When they get this information that the king of the Jews has been born, their hearts are set in motion and they want to go to him. And they move in the right direction. They head west. They head towards where the Jews are. But where do they go? They don't go where the king is. They go where the king should be, at least as far as they're concerned. That is to say, they go to Jerusalem. And this, of course, is the funny thing about the wise men. They're supposed to go to Bethlehem, and they wind up in Jerusalem. And, and as someone who is geographically challenged in really deeply profound ways, I, I, I sympathize with the wise men at a, at a really sort of basic heart level. The wise men are supposed to go to Bethlehem, but they go to Jerusalem instead. And this is a huge mistake. Right? They, they, they go to Jerusalem because that's where kings should be. Jerusalem is the capital, right? That's the capital. That's the place you go. And so they go to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they look around and they say, well, where should a king be? Oh, look, there's a palace up on top of that hill. And so they go up the hill and they knock on the door of the palace and they say, we're here to see the one who was born king of the Jews. It is hard <laughs> to believe that they could have made a worse mistake because the person who lived in that palace was not the one born the king of the Jews whose star they saw rising. Rather, it was a man named Herod the Great. Now, Herod was the king of the Jews, but he'd been the king of the Jews for a long time. And Herod was not the sort of man who appreciated hearing that there was anyone else who claimed or might claim at some point in the future that he was the king of the Jews. In fact, Herod was paranoid. Herod was suspicious to the extent that he was willing to kill not just people that he didn't care about, but even his own family in order to protect himself, his wealth, and his power. Herod was not the sort of man that you want to go up to and say, we hear that there's a new king in town. Do you know where he is? This was a huge mistake. But if Herod was, well, a kind of psychopath, he was, he was also crafty. Right? He's, he's sort of a slippery, snaky kind of guy. 
And so when the wise men say to him, we're looking for the king of the Jews, he says, oh, come on in and tell me more. I want to hear about this king of the Jews. And so the wise men come into the palace. They come secretly before Herod. And, and he says, tell me, when did you see the star? Where do you think he's going to be born? And in fact, he calls into his presence the chief priests and the scribes of the Jewish people. And he says to them, where is the coming king of the Jews going to be born? And they open up the scriptures and they turn to Micah chapter 5 and they say, here it is. Here it is. Look, you can see it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd the people, my people, Israel. There he is, say the chief priests and the scribes. He's to come from Bethlehem. Now there's an irony here. The irony is this. Chief priests and scribes, they have the word of God. They know the word of God. They understand the word of God. They can correctly interpret the word of God, and yet they don't find the one who is born king of the Jews. Instead, these foreign wise men who don't have the word of God and who don't know how to read it and don't know how to interpret it and understand it, but who have hearts that are set on that king, they do find him. There's an irony there, a deep irony. So who is this one who was born the king of the Jews? This one whom the wise men come to look for. Well, um, he is, first of all, a foreign king, and I, I don't think we want to miss that. right? These, these foreign wise men from the east come, and they come to a foreign country. And it's more than that. It's not just they're coming to a foreign country to look for a foreign king. They're actually coming to an enemy country. Right? Persia and the Roman Empire, they have been at war for about 100 years. That war is going to last for centuries longer. This moment, this moment when the wise men come to Jerusalem, this is a lull in the tensions. But this is still going to a foreign country that you are at war with, and yet they show up there. And so then they learn the funny thing about the king. We already heard the funny thing about the wise men. Here's the funny thing about the king that they're seeking. He's not very kingly. He's a king who is not very kingly. And I mean that in two ways. First of all, he's a weak king. The king that they are seeking is a weak king. Turns out when they, when they start off, from wherever they begin, when they see his star rising in the sky, that's when he's born. And so when they get to him, maybe two years later, in Bethlehem, he's a little child. He's a child king. Child kings are weak, right? Child kings are easily manipulated. They're easily overthrown. You never want to throw in your lot with a child king. But there's another reason why this king is not a very kingly king. The second reason, of course, is where he's from, where he's born. He's born in Bethlehem, of all places. Bethlehem is a backwater. Bethlehem is a no-stoplight town. Right? There's nothing going on in Bethlehem. Now, it's true 
right, that sometimes big things come out of small towns. Did you know that the actress Jessica Biel was born in Ely, Minnesota, population 2300? Did you know that Chris Pratt, yeah, Chris Pratt was born in Virginia, Minnesota, happening metropolis of Virginia, Minnesota, 8,300 people. Sometimes big things come out of small towns. And even Bethlehem had its hometown hero, King David. King David was born in Bethlehem. But you know what? That was about a 1,000 years before the whole thing with the Magi and Herod. A 1,000 years ago, somebody famous came from Bethlehem. And since then, not much has happened. Bethlehem is not the sort of place where kings are. And yet, despite this obscurity, despite uh, the weakness of this child king, turns out he is the real deal. This child king actually matters. And we can we can see this if we if we take a look at Matthew two, um, even even as early on as verse two, right? No, notice what the wise men are saying. They're saying we are looking for the king who has, or we're looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, most people become kings by becoming kings, right? Over a period of time, they become kings. They're not born kings, but this one is different. This one has been born king of the Jews from the moment of his birth, from the moment that star rose in the sky. This one was born king of the Jews, There's more. He's not just born king of the Jews. His birth as king is anticipated. This is why the chief priests and the scribes are able to go to Micah chapter 5. They're able to say, look, we have this record from 700 years ago where the prophet Micah says, the one who will be the ruler of my people Israel, he's going to come from Bethlehem. That's why they can do that. This is something that has been prophesied. This is an anticipated king. And even that prophecy that Micah offered 700 years before Herod and the wise men and the birth of Christ, even that prophecy is looking back to something further. In that prophecy, it talks about this coming king as one who is from of old, whose coming forth is from ancient days. That is to say, 700 years previous to the arrival, that's just one point in the timeline. In fact, the beginning of this plan, the plan that sees the birth of the ruler of Israel, this is a plan that stretches back all the way to ancient days. There's more. He's a king born. He's a king anticipated. And he's also a universal King. You can see this most clearly in Micah 5, where he's described as being great to the ends of the earth. But we can see it as well in Matthew 2. We can see it in the, well, in the persons of the wise men, that these, these ones from outside of God's people, these foreigners from the east, come and they bow down and worship this king. His, his reign extends to the ends of the earth through the presence of 
please wise me. Finally, he is no ordinary king. An anticipated king, a universal king, but no ordinary king. Look up at Matthew 1.23. Behold, again quoting uh, from the Old Testament, now from the book of Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Why Emmanuel? Because he is God with us. The wise men recognize the godness of this child, the deity of this child, and they do this by worshiping him. And look, look, you can see that in two, in verses two, you can see it in verses eight, you can see it in verse 11 as well. Look at verse 11. Look at what happens when they go into the house, they see the child with Mary as mother, and what do they do? They fall down. They fall down before this child and they worship him. They have finally found what they were seeking. They've gone on this tremendous journey and they have finally found what they were seeking. Have you found what you're seeking? Do you know what you're seeking? Do you know what you're looking for? Have you found your purpose in life? Do you know why you exist? My friends, whether you are a Christian or not, um, I get to remind you today that there are basically two ways to find your purpose in life basically two ways. Those two ways of finding your purpose in life, they correspond to two very different ways of living your life. One way to find your purpose is to look inside, to turn in on yourself. Second way to find your purpose is to look outside. You can be introspective or you can be extrospective. Introspective or extrospective. Our cultural moment today, right, the thing that we are hearing around us is that the way that we determine our purpose is by looking inside of ourselves. Self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-realization. If I want to be truly happy, the way that I'm going to do that is by doing what my heart tells me to do. And how do we know what our heart tells me to do? Well, you sort of look inside of yourself and you say, what would make me really happy? And then you go do that. And then when it doesn't make you happy, you try something else that you think might make you happy. The problem is with this strategy, of course, is none of these things will ever make you happy, right? Because we are not made to be satisfied by created things. Right? Go, go ask a meth addict. Go ask an alcoholic. Ask, ask John D. Rockefeller. You can't because he's dead. But 100 years ago, when John Rockefeller, the wealthiest man in the United States at that point, when he was interviewed and asked, how much money do you need? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. That's always the answer. You always need just a little bit more. Like I said, none of these things, these created things, can actually satisfy you. Christianity has a different answer. Our answer is that you cannot find satisfaction within yourself. You have to look outside of yourself. You must look outside of yourself in order to be happy. Why? Because we are not made primarily in order to make ourselves happy. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is not to make ourselves happy. When we grasp after happiness, it slips through our finger. One way that you can find happiness is grasping for something beyond happiness. When you get that, you get happiness too. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, teaching document from the 17th century, uh, a series of questions and answers, it begins famously with the question, what is the chief end of man? What, is, what are we here for? What's our purpose? 
And the answer is this. The answer chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, joy is still a part of it, but you get that joy as a consequence of something else, of glorifying God. And when we glorify God, we don't just glorify God. We also get to be joyful. We get that as well. Joy is a consequence of fulfilling our primary purpose. So Christianity says, stop trying to make yourself happy. You can't do it. You can't make yourself happy. In fact, if you want to be, if you want to be happy, right, if, you want, if you want joy, if you want satisfaction, the only way that you can actually get that is by being in right relationship with the one who made you and who gets to decide what you were made for. Right? So, so it's a little bit like, like with the wise men, right? It's only when they have that orienting star in their sights and they're following it in the way that they're supposed to be, only when they do that, only when we do it, can we be in right relationship with the one who made us and therefore in right relationship with creation and especially with those creations who were made in the image of God. That is to say with our neighbors and with ourselves. Earlier today, um, five people stood up here. We took vows. Public professions, right? Public vows to join this particular congregation of Christ's global church. I, I, I think we can probably agree that by standing up here and reciting those vows, by saying, I do, they did not suddenly receive eternal happiness and eternal joy. Right? We can probably agree on that. In fact, in the short term, it's probably going to create some anxiety and challenges in their lives. So why did they do it? Well, at best, what they did was to express outwardly an inward reality an inward desire to be rightly related to God, to one another, to you all, and to themselves. That's what this is about. But why? Why would they want that? Why would you want to go through that hassle? Well, we might just as well ask the wise men, why did you leave your homes? Why did you go to Bethlehem to begin with? And I think the problem here is that we often don't really understand what it is that we truly want in our lives. Most human beings don't actually know what they're looking for. Right? The wise men, the wise men knew what they wanted. They were following the star. They were looking for the one who had been born, the king of the Jews. And they followed that course. What that meant was for them to come to Bethlehem. What it meant was for them to fall down before this child and to worship him. But look at verse 10. When they saw the star, that is when they saw the star above the house, 
where the child Jesus was with his mother Mary. When they saw the star, when they knew that their long journey had finally come to an end, they rejoiced. And, and you know, the, the, the author here, Matthew, wants us to understand the depth of their joy. They rejoiced with exceeding joy. With exceeding joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, verse 10. Why did they do that? Did they do that because, wow, you know, we just took a really long time. This, this took a huge chunk of our lives to travel all the way across the world so we can come to this kid's house so we can give him some gifts. And now we finally get to go back home. Thank God, right? So now they're, they're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. No, no, that's not why. Is it because they thought, well, maybe this powerful and mighty king will reward us with, with wealth and stuff, right? Well, no. Uh, I'm sure that as soon as they saw the house that Jesus lived in, they realized that they weren't going to be rewarded in any specific kind of way, certainly not with wealth, certainly not with power. I don't even think that their joy was specifically a consequence of realizing that this child deserved their worship. Right? I think that there's more than that. I think that what they knew, I think that the reason why their hearts were drawn towards Bethlehem, the reason that they went was because they knew that this child didn't just receive their gifts from them, he gave a gift as well. And their hearts knew that the only way that they could be satisfied was to receive that gift. To see this, I want us to turn to uh, the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5. Uh, Micah is an Old Testament book. If you turn back in your Bibles about 20, 25 pages, uh, you'll run into it there. It's part of a group of shorter books at the end of the Old Testament. These are called the Minor Prophets, or sometimes the Book of the Twelve, because there are 12 of these together, hence the name. Uh, Micah is writing in the 8th century, uh, right around the same time as the prophet Isaiah, who is certainly much better known than Micah was. And this is the passage, the passage I want to take you to here today, this is the passage that is quoted or cited in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. This is the one that says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So from verse 2, look at it. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So from obscure beginnings, Bethlehem, Bethlehem which is too small to be of any account one will come forth from you. One will come forth who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Right. So his coming forth was already prophesied. It's already part of the plan. Even before Micah is making this message known, his coming forth is from of old. It's from according to plan. Therefore, Verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Because all of this is happening according to plan, that means that there is going to be a gap between the time when Micah gives his prophecy and the time when the king arrives, when she who is in labor has given birth. And that means 
verse 3, that during that time, God will give them up. He will give his people up. What does that mean in this context? In this context, what that means is that on account of their sin, on account of their having rejected their God, God is going to give them up into their own sins. He is going to allow them to be sent off into exile. And sure enough, in the 8th century, the Assyrians came and they captured the 10 northern tribes of Israel. They took them off into exile, into captivity. 140 years later, the Babylonians came and they captured the two southern tribes. And they took them into captivity. 70 years later, those tribes were allowed to return, to go back and to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their capital city. But even after they returned, they remained under the thumb of foreign powers. First, Persia. Then, later, the Greeks. Then, after them, the Romans. And so it was that when Herod and the wise men and Jesus lived, the Jews still found themselves, the people of God still found themselves under the thumb of foreign powers. They were still given up by God. But all that changes now when the king comes forth. Therefore, he shall give them up until that time when she who is in labor is given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. When this king appears, the rest of his brothers shall return. Verse 3, verse 4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock. He'll gather them together as a flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That's how far his dominion extends. To the ends of the earth, he will gather his people as he has gathered in the wise men, so he will gather in all of his brothers to the ends of the earth. And for those who take, for those who take refuge in the shepherd, for those who are part of his flock, notice that those who like the wise men come and fall down who submit themselves to this king, who worship before him. For them, verse 4, verse 5, there is security and he shall be their peace. That's right. This king, this young king, this weak king shall be their peace. And the peace that he gives isn't temporary peace. It isn't the false peace that the world gives, right? Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I give you true peace, not peace like the world gives you. Not that false peace. Not the temporary peace, but true peace, real peace. The sort of peace that is more than just an absence of conflict. The sort of peace that is human flourishing. It's the sort of peace that says, today was the best day of my life. And I loved every moment of it, and tomorrow's going to be a better day. That's the sort of peace that this king offers to his people. Friends, I know that the world around us um, man, it feels like it's falling apart. Um, thing, things, are, things are not great out there. Uh, and I get sad a lot um, looking at what's happening, looking at laws that get passed, uh, looking at things that people do to one another, looking at wars that are being fought, looking at the way that people hurt one another. And I ask myself, is that king really reigning? Is this kingdom a true kingdom? The answer is it is. It's not a kingdom of this world, though. King Jesus' kingdom is both 
different and greater than the kingdom of King Herod. I want you to know that Christ is a rock. He's a rock in the midst of a storm. Christ is, is a pearl of great price, such that, such that the wise men would sell all that they own in order to possess it. And Christ is the living water that satisfies truly. Drink of him and you will never be thirsty again. Christ is the true and living vine, the vine who gives true life to all of those who are united to him. Christ is the one who loves you. And he loves you especially when you don't deserve that love. If you turn to him, you cannot lose his love. He will never let you go. So go and seek the shepherd. Seek the shepherd. If you are sad, uh, if you're lonely, seek him. Turn to him. If you don't know how you're going to get through the rest of the semester, if you don't know how to get through this season of life, turn to him. Seek him. If you, if you have already found him and your love has grown cold for him, seek him again. He welcomes that. He welcomes repeat offenders and those who return to him. My friends, when you find him, when you fall down before him and worship him, when you acknowledge him as the sovereign and king over your life, when you become a subject of his good and glorious kingdom, then go back to where you came from. Like the wise men, depart to your own country, but depart, leave this place forever changed. Forever changed. Don't go as, as a slave right? A slave of a kingdom of this world, a slave of the passions of the flesh, a slave to the temptations of this world around you, but go as a brother, go as a sister of the great king, the king who loved you and who gave himself for you. Go as a subject of his kingdom. Go and enjoy him forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have given us a great gift in giving us your Son. In him you offer us life and breath and hope and all things. And I pray, O oh Lord, that as we see the world around us struggling to offer meaning, I pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts as you turn the hearts of the wise men towards your son. I pray, Lord, that we would find our life, our hope, our meaning, our satisfaction in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. spend just a few more moments uh, in prayer uh, before we uh, respond to the word, uh, the song, and also uh, some more time of prayer. But for now, if you can just pray in your hearts, uh, asking God uh, to make all these uh, promises of God uh, real 
um, in our lives, in our hearts, um, that Jesus is the rock, He is, is the peace that we long for, that He is the shepherd, that He is a refuge in the midst of our storms. Um, you know, all these things may it not be just um, that we uh, hear about or just words on a page. But let's ask God that, that He would uh, touch our hearts with this truth through His Holy Spirit, that we will truly leave this place uh, having His joy, just like the Magi. We do that, and then we'll uh, sing the song uh, in response. Let's pray. I think the the word, the word that we just heard is very applicable, um, not because you know we're you know near Christmas and uh, it's a typical Christmas passage, but because you know I think there is an ongoing turmoil going on in the world and in our lives. I think personally, um, you know, in many of our lives, uh, I would imagine, and also hearing from you know you guys individually. Um, when you share about uh, how things are going in your lives, I think there's always the restlessness um, that comes from, you know, working in the world. Um, you know, as young adults and students uh, in your respective callings. And I've been meditating on um, the idea, uh, in, in fact, the truth of the world being our slave master uh, because uh, right now I'm in the, the Bible reading plan where I'm going through the Exodus story and there's a you know story of you know Moses and Pharaoh and 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 Pharaoh in my mind uh, is really the personification of you know the world you know telling the Israelites you know work 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 you know you are lazy work 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 um, and uh, the Israelites people of God are uh, in slavery and turmoil. Uh, they don't get to see beyond um, the, the happiness uh, that they long for, which is just a, just a little drip of water uh, from their uh, slavery work. And maybe we're all like that in many ways. You know, um, if you're students, um, you know, going through classes and uh, trying to, you know, study for exams tomorrow or next week. Um, you know that really uh, binds you to the, the system, um, so that you can't see beyond that. And uh, if you're working, um, you know the next deadline. What is it? And what what's my boss saying? Um, you know what's what's my next step? What's my next project? How can I you know um, get past this and uh, get promoted? And all these things, you know, it can um, get translated to us, uh, like what Pharaoh says: "Work, work, work." You know, what are you doing? Work, work, work. Um, and it becomes your identity, and the happiness that you long for is not found. Um, but when we seek beyond uh, all these things, uh, because of God's word, uh, like we just heard that speaks to us the true reality that there is a king his true peace and when we seek him as a result uh, we gain um, the joy that we our souls always long for 
It's a joy that cannot be satisfied with the um, things of the world. Um, you know, if if Tom Brady cannot be happy, you know, what other hopes are there? You know, humanly speaking, right? Um, so let's pray together uh, in response. Um, just really surrendering ourselves, uh, trusting that this King is a true Shepherd who can lead us to the the pasture of living water. As you do that, uh, just be honest with them, saying, Lord, I have been looking for other things. I have been looking at other things to um, satisfy my heart. And in fact, um, alongside of my own sins and idolatry, I know that this world has paralyzed me. So it has been hard. My mental and emotional and physical health has been suffering because I'm finding myself unable to reach you, Lord. But thank you for speaking to me right now and help me now through your very real Holy Spirit um, to seek you and get beyond the, the earthly goals of this world. Enlarge my heart so that I will be okay with any outcomes of this world because I have the one in my heart who will never let me go. Uh, can we just do that? Uh, just be real with God, uh, coming back to Him right now together as people of God um, who uh, liberates us from the slavery of the world. Let's come back to Him together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that Your yoke is easy uh, and You give us true rest for our souls. Thank you that you are um, a loving shepherd that uh, leads us and never rejects um, the lost sheep found. Uh, Lord, we come before you with many, many burdens in our lives. Um, sometimes we feel like we can't take another step. But Lord, uh, you are the one who loves us as we are uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, and you are the one who calls us um, your, your children. And in that security of your love, Lord, we cast all our burdens onto you. Give us strength and trust and faith in you uh, to go beyond what's in front of us um, and got to seek you and experience uh, being in refuge, uh, being in a storm shelter in the midst of the storm of this life. Help us, God. Especially, Lord, um, strengthen uh, those in the midst of us, even in this room, who uh, have been really struggling, who have been downcast for various reasons. Uh, encourage them by reminding them of your existence and your love for them. So may they leave this place more hopeful, uh, you know, more um, secure in their lives, God. Help us, Lord. 